Well, did you get what you wanted for Christmas? I wonder if you were to turn to the person next to you this morning and ask them what it is they actually wanted most for Christmas, what it is they desired most, how many would say, I want, I want to see and experience the peace and the love of Jesus? How many of us would even think of giving that response? I've often said, and I believe with my whole heart, that the single most important consideration during the Christmas season is the intensity of our desire to experience the love of Christ. To not forget him. To not let our, as Carolyn referred to today, our hyperactivity and our plans and our relentless feverish activity, our distracting fear of getting a virus, for example, and our unrealistic expectations blur our recognition of the greatest gift of love and joy and peace given in all human history. I mean, we all say it. We all intend it. But still we keep falling into the same trap of consumer distraction every single year. It is so hard to disengage from the world and engage with Christ, isn't it? It's so easy to walk right by him on a cold January morning, a man sat at a metro station in Washington, D.C. and started to play the violin. He played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes, and during that time, since it was rush hour, it was calculated that more than 1,000 people went through that station, most of them rushing on their way to work. Three minutes went by, and a middle-aged man noticed there was a musician playing. He slowed his pace and stopped for a few seconds and then hurried up to meet his schedule. A minute later, the violinist received his first dollar tip. A woman threw some money in the till and without stopping, continued to walk right on by. A few minutes later, someone leaned against the wall to listen to him play, but the man looked at his watch and he started to walk away again. Clearly, he was late for work. The one who paid the most attention was a three-year-old boy. His mother tagged him along and hurried, but the kid stopped to look at the violinist, and finally the mother pushed hard, and the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time, looking behind him at the violinist. And this action was repeated by several other children. All the parents, without exception, forced them and urged them to move on. In the 45 minutes the musician played, only six people, six people stopped and stayed for a little while. About 20 gave him money, but continued to walk their normal pace. He collected a whopping $32. And when he finished playing and silence took over, no one noticed it, no one applauded, nor was there any recognition. What the people did not know was that the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the best musicians in the world. And he played one of the most intricate pieces ever written with a violin worth $3.5 million. 
Two days before playing in the subway, Joshua Bell sold out to a theater in Boston and the seat prices averaged $100 a piece. This is a true story. Actually, you can watch it on YouTube. The video of Bell's subway stunt went viral and still makes the rounds today on social media. No one knew it, explained the Washington Post reporter Gene Weingarten, several months after the event, but the fiddler standing against the bare wall outside the metro in an indoor arcade at the top of the escalators was one of the finest classical musicians in the world, playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made. Jesus said these words, to what can I compare this generation? We played the flute for you and you did not dance. The master is still playing, but the listening is optional. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Let me ask you, are you hearing the real music and message of Christmas even after the Christmas holiday? Stripped to its core, what do you think that is? What do you want for Christmas? What are you expecting to come this year to you? If you've come here looking for answers to the real meaning of Christmas, then prepare yourself because God always does the unexpected. He doesn't always give you what you want. He's more interested in giving you what you need. We have so decorated the original Christmas story with sentimentality that we fail to realize that when the nativity of our Lord unfolded, it was totally unrehearsed and completely unexpected. And by the majority of the religious community in his day, even by his own parents, Christmas was nothing like what we might have expected it to be, yet it was the unparalleled, the unequaled, the unrivaled and unsurpassed brushstroke of love, God's love, on the canvas of human history. Brendan Manning once wrote these words that our pious imagination and nostalgic music robs Christmas of its shock value because all the Santa Clauses and red-nosed reindeer, 50-foot trees, and the thundering church bells put together create less pandemonium than the infant Jesus when instead of remaining a statue in a crib, he comes alive and delivers us over to the fire that came to light. I like those words. In other words, the real meaning of Christmas shocks us to the core, at least it ought to, amen? amen? All of us have preconceived ideas about Jesus, don't we? We do, we think we have him all figured out. Sometimes I stand up here and I think I have him all figured out. The older I get, the more I say that is folly. We, we think we know how he speaks, when he moves, what he looks like, and how he is defined. We even go so far as to intricately weave scriptures together, sometimes completely out of context, to form our own tapestry of who God is. Tragically, that's exactly what the religious leaders of his day did, and they missed him by a mile. It's easy for us to criticize them for not believing. We have the benefit of hindsight, don't we? 
But if we're not careful, we can end up making the same exact mistakes, can't we? Creating Jesus in our own image instead of conforming our own image to his. The people of Jesus' time expected a different pedigree, a different geography, a different philosophy, as Ivan alluded to today. And they were so convinced of their own ideas that they would absolutely not believe even in the face of the facts. Just as today, rather than change their impression to accommodate the truth, they rejected the truth to accommodate their impressions. And they coldly and blindly dismissed him, the very one they were looking for. It's no surprise that on the first Christmas so many people missed him. It's also no surprise that many people still do. We must allow Christ to define himself. Let me say that again. We must allow Christ to define himself. We must allow ourselves to see him as he really is through the lens of God's word in context. So today I want to take another hard look and see if we have any preconceived notions that need to be changed as we prepare our hearts for this coming year and remember the celebration that we had or maybe are still having of the coming of the birth of the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to the minor prophet Micah in chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 2 through 5. Mind you, this was written 700 years before Christ was born, okay? Keep that in the back of your mind. 700 years before Christ was born. How old is 700 years? We don't even know how old that is, right? We in America think 100 years is old. 700 years before Christ was born, this was written. Had they looked a little deeper, had they allowed the Spirit to help them see a little bit clearer, had they opened their spiritual eyes just a little bit wider, the people of Jesus' time would have seen that in this passage, Jesus, the Son of Man, was in fact Christ, the Son of God. He was everything the Messiah, the prophesied anointed one, was supposed to be according to the Scriptures. But they were looking so hard for a Christ of their own making that they missed out on the Christ that God gave them. What about you? What about you? Here's a riddle I like to tell, and I've told it so many times, probably most of you here already know it, but I know there's a lot of new people here that don't know it. So if you know the answer, please do not say it. Do not tell it yet, okay? Just keep it to yourself for all you new people. Here's the riddle. You can ponder it throughout the course of this message. No, I really want you to concentrate on what I'm saying, but put it in the back of your mind. What do you sit on, sleep on, and brush your teeth with? Okay? Think about that one for a while. The answer is incredibly obvious, by the way, which we will find out, as plain as the nose on your face. But most people become so focused on the oblivious that they miss the obvious. Hidden in plain sight. So, if we're going to see Jesus for who he really is, we need to recognize three non-negotiables 
about Jesus the Christ, okay? Three non-negotiables this morning. Number one, we must acknowledge the Christ of the cradle. We must acknowledge the Christ of the cradle. Look at Micah chapter five, verse two, two and three. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from, one, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Now, never in a million years would anyone have ever thought that the God of the universe would come this way. The one rightful ruler came into the world in a one-horse town, a town so small, a town so insignificant that when the land was distributed among the tribes of Israel, it wasn't even mentioned once among the cities of Judah. Bethlehem was kind of like Fayette, out in the sticks, invisible to the world, and easy to forget. Yet we find, nevertheless, that number one, it was the birthplace of a king. The birthplace of a king. Verse two, it says, from, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Bethlehem's prom prominence in the Old Testament was found only in its association with King David. Okay? He was born there. It was not only his home, but also where he was anointed king. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 16 and, um, and 17, you'll see that in verse 20 as well, uh, chapter 20 as well. It was, it was also the city in which Rachel was buried and in which Ruth and Boaz, prominent in the lineage of Jesus, resided. Okay? The chief priests and the teachers of the law knew that the Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem. They knew that. There was no question about that. Matthew chapter 2. Just look at Matthew chapter 2 for a moment. And verse 1. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Okay? Verse 4. I mean verse 5. What did they say to him? In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They were quoting Micah chapter 5. That fact confused many people about Jesus. They assumed that Jesus was born in Nazareth, right? 
Had they checked a little further, they would have realized that Jesus was raised in Nazareth, but he was born in the city of David. But they didn't check. They didn't do fact checks back then. <laughs> and so they dismissed him. Fake news. Much like people do today. People are always divided about Christ today. Just look at John chapter 7. Later on in Jesus' life, we see that. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, is a good illustration. John 7, verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Verse 40, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from where? Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so it says in verse 43, a division occurred in the crowd because of him. There's always a division in the crowd about Jesus Christ, isn't there? You see, Bethlehem had no real prominence in their eyes. Not even today, other than our nostalgia about the birth of Christ. I mean, hardly any Jews live there. And consequently, they missed the coming of the prominent one. The name Bethlehem, you know what it means? It means house of bread. House of bread, a fitting city from which the bread of life should come. Ephrathah, an ancient name associated with Bethlehem of Judah, clearly distinguishes it from another city, another city called Bethlehem of Zebulon, which we find in Joshua chapter 19 in verse 15. The name comes from a root word that means to bear fruit. Ephrathah means fruitful field, another fitting designation for a city through which Christ the true vine of John 15 should come. You see, Bethlehem was the birthplace of the king. The son of God humbled himself and was born in a cave surrounded by a handful of animals in a town not five miles away from Jerusalem the center of Jewish worship, just five short miles. And none of the religious leaders made the journey. Not one of them witnessed the coming of the very one for whom they were waiting. Ironic, isn't it? I think it's interesting that the deliverance they sought the deliverer they eagerly awaited did not rise from their great center of religion, but from the fringes where no one was looking, right under their upturned noses. And they never saw him, hidden in plain sight. Let me ask you, where are you looking for Jesus? 
Where are you looking for Jesus? The Christ of the cradle was born silently in an obscure town where there was no room for him. He was born in total humility. In the cradle of Bethlehem, we discover the birthplace of a king, the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus the Christ. The text says that he will go forth from God, for God, to be ruler. In other words, to have dominion, power, and authority. It is stated and restated throughout the scriptures, Jesus is the king. Amen? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel has a vision. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then at the end of the book, in Revelation chapter 11, in verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. This is what's going to happen when Christ comes again. Are you seeing this Jesus? The one that I just quoted scripture about? Is this the Jesus that you have embraced? Jesus as king, Jesus as Lord. He's not simply a Christ who rescues, my friends. He also rules and he reigns. So let him. Say with the psalmist, the Lord is king forever and ever, as it says in Psalm 10, verse 16. The king of eternity began his earthly life as the Christ of the cradle. Not only was the cradle of, the Bethlehem, of Bethlehem the birthplace of a king, but also he was the glory of God. Verse 2 in Micah, again, the second part of the verse. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The whole context of these Hebrew words indicate that the child in the cradle is none other than God himself. Literally, the Hebrew says that his goings forth, meaning his ancestry, his Old Testament appearances as the angel of the Lord, his providential dealings, his work in creation, etc., etc., all throughout the Old Testament are from days of immeasurable time, is what it literally says. In other words, eternity. In other words, this ruler of Israel, this child born in a manger, already existed in eternity. 
from eternity past, if you can wrap your head around that. This verse clearly implies that the Christ child is the mighty God. And in the midst of a world ravaged by sin, the almighty God of the universe planted himself in the womb of a teenage girl in the middle of Palestine to be born as an infant. Can you imagine that? No. We talk about it all the time. But I can't imagine it. He became as vulnerable as anyone can be by laying aside every vestige of his kingship. He blended in, right? Behold, the Bible says, the virgin shall be with child and she'll bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus wasn't a picture of what God is like. Jesus wasn't a picture of God, what God is like. He was and is God himself. Exactly what the prophet Isaiah claimed in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which I just read. You know? Child will be born to us. Son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called. Watch this now. Watch the names. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. All of those names wrap around the concept of sovereign deity. To the weary, he is wonderful. To the confused, he's a counselor. To the weak, he's mighty God. To the orphaned, he's everlasting father. And to the troubled, he's the prince of peace. And this is precisely what we look forward to on, the, on, on Christmas. And all throughout Advent, we look forward to the prince of peace coming. Amen? Jesus offers peace from God to all who have received his grace, as it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and 5, verse 1. He brings peace with God to all who surrender to him by faith. And he brings the peace of God to all who walk with him continually. The New Testament confirms this about Jesus. I'd like you to turn just for a minute. We're going to take a sidebar here out of Micah. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians. Colossians. You want to talk about a letter that really highlights Christ and who he really is. Colossians, if you would, chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. I want you to notice this about Jesus, okay, real quickly. It's a whole sermon in and of itself, but let's just go down through it quickly. Number one, Jesus is the image of God. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You see that? Now, that's not simple resemblance, but perfect duplicate, a precise copy, more like the original than a photograph. That's what Christ is. That's what these words in the original language imply. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is Jesus, the image of God. 
He's the firstborn of God, it says there. Look at it again in verse 15. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or things um, have been, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might, will have, will come to have first place in everything. This is another controversial verse here. It talks about Jesus being the firstborn of God. But it doesn't have to be controversial, because really, it doesn't mean that he was the firstborn in chronological order or that he was a created being. The Greek term refers to rank, not origin. It means that he has the right to inherit the rule all over his father's house and of all over creation because of his position as firstborn, okay? So he is the image of God, the firstborn of God. He's the fullness of God. Look at verse 19. For it was the, fa it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. You cannot embrace the Christ of the cradle as just a good man, a great teacher, or even a Messiah because he's a whole lot more than that. He is God in human flesh. He's not only the Son of God, but he is God the Son. Now, don't miss that. Many people can tolerate the baby in a manger once a year. They don't want to hear about the king of eternity on a daily basis, do they? Because that means they cannot do as they please. You and I can't do as we please if Jesus is really king. He's the image of God, the firstborn of God, the fullness of God, and then number four, he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, and through him, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. When Jesus was born, he was called the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. If we are to receive him, we must accept him as such. Savior, Messiah, Messiah, and Lord. Amen? Read Acts chapter 2, verse 36, and Acts chapter 4, verse 12. You'll see that. Would you really like to know what Christmas is really about? The baby in the manger is the king. He's the Lord. He is your savior. Christmas is all about who Jesus is and who Jesus came for. He came for you. Every one of you and me. And so, back to the prophet Micah in chapter 5, in the cradle of Bethlehem, we not only see the birthplace of a king and the glory of God, but we see the blessings of a savior. Look at verse 3. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she was in labor, has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. All Israel had been waiting for a savior, a deliverer from the oppression of this life. But because of their unrepented sin, God had given them over and abandoned the nation for a time. He put them on the shelf, so to speak. 
driven them into exile, allowed them to go through a time of intense trouble. He gave them a little taste of what life would be like without God, right? Have you ever thought of what it would be like if God took his hands off of us? Really? In Micah chapter 3, in verse 4, you get a little picture. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. Look at verse, chapter 4, verse 10. Rise and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth, for now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. You see, God gave Israel a little taste of what life would be like without him in the picture. There's a story that I love about a time when a husband came home from work and the house was an absolute wreck. It was a complete disaster. The baby was crying, there were dirty dishes all over the counters, dirty laundry was hanging from the doorknobs, the TV was blaring, beds were unmade, carpets were unvacuumed, dust was undisturbed, the dinner was uncooked, and when he, when he wanted to know what had happened, his wife told him, you know how you always ask me what I've been doing all day? Well, today I didn't do it. <laughs> Wives love to tell that story. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. What if God did that? What if God did that? He just sat on the couch, sat on the throne, but he didn't do anything. Just took his hands off of us. He kind of did that to Israel for a time. And eventually they cried out loudly, it says, that we just read, wouldn't we? Wouldn't you and I? But God promised them a savior. That's what it says in verse three. When she who is in labor has born a child, then, then. Now this is not necessarily a reference to Mary, probably inference to the nation in the pains of tribulation, at which time the savior came, and by the way, will come again. And unfortunately, Israel missed their Savior the first time. They didn't see the Christ of the cradle, and therefore God has allowed them to be afflicted until that time when Jesus will come again. Then finally, the nation will see clearly. See, tribulation has a way of opening our eyes, doesn't it? One day, the nation of Israel will see that's what it says in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Someday, one day, everyone will see what you and I talk about today. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, John writes, Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the earth 
will weep because of him. Yes, amen. You don't have to miss Jesus. No one does. God is giving truth to us. He's giving truth to you. Don't ignore him. Embrace him. The baby in the manger is your long-awaited, unexpected gift, hidden in plain sight. It's interesting to me that Israel missed their Savior because they didn't expect him to arrive in a cradle. They expected a royal appearance. We, on the other hand, are more than willing to acknowledge Christ in the cradle, but can't seem to get it into our heads that he also wears a crown. Israel rejected the baby. We refused the king. It's a cultural reversal, yet every bit as devastating, isn't it? We in our 21st century American mindset must embrace something extremely foreign to our thinking. We must embrace the Christ of the crown. That means that we must surrender. We must throw our hands up in surrender. How many times do we forget that? That he's the head of all creation, and that includes the church. But we need to see him not as an impersonal authoritarian, a tyrannical bossing us around, but as he is, a caring shepherd who will one day assume the throne. Again, in verse 4, he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So, you need to accept him as your shepherd, first and foremost. I think it's significant that the announcement of his birth was given first to a handful of shepherds, as Dan alluded to this morning. They were tending their flocks. That is what he is, the ultimate shepherd, the one who cares for and guides and protects and feeds his people, something the religious leaders of Micah's day failed to do. You know, in the time period that this was written and also at the time that Jesus was born, the people were like sheep without a shepherd, right? You knew that, right? And today, the same situation exists in our own world, doesn't it? Those who have never received Christ as their shepherd are wandering around trying to find some spiritual rest somewhere and are longing for security. They're longing for care. People are hungering for spiritual food and they don't have any idea where to find it. And that's too bad. That's kind of like a blight on the church, isn't it? If they can't find it in church, they need to be able to find it somewhere and that's why Christ gave birth to the church so they could find it in the church. Jesus is the answer but people refuse to look to him. And the one who was born in a manger is the same one, according to this text, who will arise or stand on firm ground and shepherd his flock. This is the promise of God, which has widespread application. The promise of God for the nation of Israel is that when Jesus comes again, they will finally acknowledge him as their long-awaited shepherd. But the promise of God for us is that we no longer have to wander around lost and vulnerable. When you receive the true Christ of Christmas, you will be well cared for. Amen? The New Testament says that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep in John chapter 10. He's the great shepherd 
because he lives for us, it says in Hebrews 13. He's the chief shepherd, according to 1 Peter 5, because he will one day come for us. And then he is the guardian shepherd, according to 1 Peter 2.25, because he is the anchor of our souls. Amen? So I invite you today to take that first step, if you haven't already, and receive him as your shepherd. But don't stop there. Acknowledge him as your sovereign. That's the next thing. We need to acknowledge him as our sovereign. Jesus is the one who builds his church. He is the one who will regather his chosen people, Israel. He is the one whose glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. He is the one whose throne is forever and ever because he rules in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, as it says here in Micah chapter 5, verse 4. You will never find Jesus doing anything other than that which his Father wills. Therefore, his kingdom will remain. His people will endure. He was, is, and always will be great, it says, because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. See what it says in verse 4? He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. He is great. In fact, that's exactly how his birth announcement read. Do you remember? The angel Gabriel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33, these words. He said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great the angel said, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Friends, Jesus is the Christ of the cradle. He is the Christ of the crown. But without the final view of who he is, we are still lost in a world of sin. When it's all said and done, you must entrust yourself to the Christ of the cross. It's that simple. That's in verse 5. This one will be our peace. This one will be our peace, it says at the beginning of chapter 5. That's the important issue of Christmas, writes one pastor. It's not so much that Jesus came, but why he came. There was no salvation in his birth, nor did the sinless way he lived his life have any redemption force of its own. His example, as flawless as it was, could not rescue men from their sins. Even his teaching, the greatest truth revealed to man, could not save us from our sins. There was a price to be paid for our sins. Someone had to die. And only Jesus could do it. So that light over the stable in which Jesus was born cast a shadow of a cross over the world that he would eventually redeem. The Christ of the cross 
is who we must see at Christmas. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died for you. He's the gift of God. And he's the bridge to God. That's what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, which we just looked at. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So let me ask you, where are you on the journey? Where are you on this journey? Which side of the bridge are you standing on? And is there any reason in the world, after hearing all of that about Christ, that you wouldn't want to cross from one side to the other to have eternal life? One of the first things I came to understand as a new Christian, some 39 years ago, I guess it is now, in fact, I just celebrated my spiritual birthday on December 24th. One of the first things I came to understand as a new Christian was that religion doesn't save anybody. I was stuck in it for 24 years. In those early days of my journey, someone told me that my religion was really me reaching out to God, but that true Christianity was God reaching down to me. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by the way. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Titus 3, 5. I love that verse. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but by his mercy, according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That made all the difference in the world to me when I understood that. God reached out to me with his life even when I kept pushing him away. And the thing is, he never stopped reaching out to me until I finally gave him my life. Will you give him yours? I am so thankful that he never gave up on me, but he will never give up on you. He loved us enough to send Jesus and he allowed us to beat his back and to pierce his hands and to spill his blood. You know why? Because it is his nature to save. In the words of Paul, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thank God for his son, a gift too wonderful for words. And Micah says, this one will be our peace, and he is. He's the only one who can bring peace within people's souls, according to Luke chapter two, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men with whom he is pleased. Is God pleased with you? Have you received his son? He's the only one that can bring peace between nations, estranged spouses, bitter siblings, and polarized races. That's what Ephesians 2.14 says. He himself is our peace 
who broke the barrier down and brought the two groups into one. He's the only one who can bring us peace with God, as Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says. Listen to me, my beloved brothers and sisters and friends. Don't be oblivious to what is blatantly obvious here. So what do you sit on, sleep on, and brush your teeth with? And the answer, you could say it with me. It's a chair, a bed, and a toothbrush. The answer is so obvious. Hidden in plain sight. As plain as the nose on your face, but nobody ever sees it. And so is Jesus. He's right there in front of you. No one expects him. No one understood him. Most people were too interested in what they wanted to receive what they needed. What do you want for Christmas? What have you wanted for Christmas? What do you really need for the rest of your life? Someone once said, God is a God of miracles. He performs them all the time, but there is a difference between a God of miracles and a God of magic. Miracles are for his glory. Magic is performed for our entertainment. Let me tell you, Christmas was never about magic. It was certainly never meant to be for our entertainment. Christmas is about a miracle, the miracle of life, life in the eternal sense. All right, let me wrap it up. There's a reason I began this message with a repeat of the story of Joshua Bell appearing unnoticed in a D.C. subway station. So on September 30th of 2014, Joshua Bell appeared a second time to give a second concert at a D.C. subway station. Not at L'Enfant Plaza, but site of the original stunt, but this time at Union Station, a mile and a half away from the original one. This time, Bell played downstairs in a vaulted thoroughfare, and the free concert was not incognito, but rather advertised well in advance. A purported crowd of 2,000 people amassed before the concert started and photos of the event made clear that Bell was playing for a full station with full attention. Every eye saw him, every ear heard him. This time there was no question. People were actually looking for him. Friends, for us, Embracing Christmas is nothing short of looking for him who will come again. Are you looking for him? Are you expecting him? Are you living your life like he could appear at any time? Too often we claim to believe that he's coming back at any moment, but we conduct our lives as if he were never returning. As a matter of fact, frequently we live as if he'd never left the grave. He did. And as a matter of fact... That ought to enhance our anticipation because you know what? He always keeps his promises. Always. I will come again, Jesus said in John 14, 3. That is our blessed hope, amen? amen. Will you recognize Jesus at his next unexpected context? Will you recognize him? Once upon a time, 
And now is the time an eternal God decided to give man the opportunity for eternal peace and rest through the gift of his son. Believe in him. Entrust yourself to him. He is the gift, the most important gift you will ever receive because there is salvation in no one else because there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus. Jesus. I can't put it to you in many more simple terms than that. It's what my heart longs for each of you to discover if you haven't already. So let's pray. And Father, as we bow our heads in prayer, thinking about all that's been uncovered through the scriptures today, as we think about the coming of a Savior who was unrecognized and the promise of a coming again of that Savior, whom we wait for, but many probably will not recognize him, not at first, but then immediately there will be no denying it. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone in this room today that has not made that choice and decision, that if they are being led by the Holy Spirit right now, in fact, it's the only way you can make that decision, that they would bow their hearts and their minds and cry out to them in the depths of their soul. Lord, please save me. I need you. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Be my Savior and my Lord. Father, if there's anyone that received that today and will receive that today, I pray, Father, that you would just put your hand of incredible blessing upon them. May they go from this place knowing they have the security of your leadership in their life and an eternal home in heaven. And I pray, Father, that you'd move them to share that with somebody. God in heaven, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. Thank you for being our gift. In Jesus' name, amen.